Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gatsad. This week is our reading week in Montreal, so we don't have uh, teaching. And therefore, what did I decide to do to rest? I booked all kinds of unbelievable guests, starting today with Dr. Aaron Kiriati. How are you doing, sir? Great, Gad. It's good to be here with you. Thank you. So let me just read for some people. I, I have here your prepared um, you know, bio. So you're a psychiatrist by training. You're a physician. You were a professor for a while at UC Irvine. And as we mentioned offline, uh, I was a professor at UC Irvine for a few years and have always wanted to return to Southern California. We can talk about that, uh, doctor. Director of the Program in Bioethics and American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., Director of the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr. Is that how you pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? Zephyr. Zephyr, Zephyr Institute. Institute yeah. in Palo Alto, California. You taught, as I said, psychiatry at UC uh, School, UCI School of Medicine previously, and you were the director of the medical medical ethics program at UCI Health. You are the author of this latest book, which we will be talking about. People get out there and purchase it. The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And previously, you had two other books, The Catholic Guide to Depression. I'd like to discuss that, how the saints, the sacraments, and psychiatry can help you break its grip and find happiness again. And another book, Transformative Conversations, A Guide to Mentoring Communities Among Colleagues in Higher Education. Did I cover all of the, the key points? That's about it. Yeah, that's no, that's that's more than enough. Thank you for the <laughs> kind introduction. Uh, by the way, I listened yesterday. I posted this on on uh, Twitter uh, I I listened to you in preparation for this chat I listened to your chat with uh, Drew Pinsky and yeah. I thought it was a, a, a wonderful conversation so kudos for that let's start with you know the theme of this book what is the biomedical biomedical security state tell us about it who yeah. runs it what's going on so the bio, what I call the biomedical security state is really the coming together of three things that used to be distinct. And this has been in the works for 20, 25 years, but we really saw this new regime manifest during the COVID pandemic. So the, the three elements are, number one, an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And I can talk a little more later about what I mean by that. The second element is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control to deal with the public health crisis. So this is the first epidemic or pandemic of the digital age. The iPhone was invented in 2007. And so this was the first time that we had the technological ability to monitor and track the movements and the contacts of indiv individuals across an entire population. So we know now, for example, that the CDC was, without the public's notification or authorization, extracting bulk track and trace data from phones and using that to monitor compliance with lockdown orders. Vice broke this story last May. So they were looking at how many people were gathering at a church, how many people were gathering at a school. And supposedly this data was anonymized, but there were some researchers from Princeton showing that if you only had four of the data points in their data set, you could easily identify the, the individual you know, associated with that particular uh, phone or that particular data point. So this is just one example. Obviously there's the, the more publicly well-known example is the use of vaccine passports, right? Having having to show a QR code to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant or a concert or a public event. 
And this QR code was there to demonstrate that I had done what I had been told to do by the public health authorities, including injecting a novel gene therapy into my body, regardless of whether or not I wanted uh, I wanted that that medical intervention. I think if you would have told people in 2018, Gad, that we would be doing this in a couple of years, you know, most Americans and Canadians would have looked at you as though you were completely insane. This this violates all kinds of, you know, fundamental rights that we take for granted of association, uh, of bodily autonomy, of uh, travel, you know, getting back into my own country of origin. so, so you've got an increasingly militarized public health apparatus wedded to these digital technologies of surveillance and control that increasingly sort of manage our behavior at a very micro level. And those two elements are backed up by the third element, which is the police powers of the state. So we can think about uh, in Canada, Justin Trudeau invoking the Emergency Act for the first time in Canadian history to not only forcibly remove the truckers protest from the city of Ottawa, but going an additional step of, with the cooperation of banks, turning, basically turning against their own customers, freezing the accounts, freezing the bank accounts of the truckers and indeed of anyone who gave funds, who contributed money to that, to that peaceful public gathering. So, you know, imagine giving 50 bucks to the Freedom Convoy one day and then going to the ATM the next day, and you're not able to withdraw cash from your account because the government has invoked emergency powers in order to freeze that account. So this whole apparatus was really functioning under the legal auspices of a declared state of emergency. So the declared... Uh, state of exception or state of emergency or crisis at the federal level or at the state or provincial level, that made possible all of these, uh, what I would argue are excessively authoritarian, intrusive, draconian controls on the lives and the bodies of of individuals. And what I argue in the book uh, is that even though a lot of these specific policies have been sort of rolled back, whether it's vaccine mandates or vaccine passports or lockdowns and school closures, mask mandates and so forth, the entire infrastructure that was rolled out during the pandemic, that's still in place. And that's that's sort of waiting in the wings for the next declared public health crisis or public health emergency. And this, this new model of governance right? That you say, well, who's running this thing? I think the answer to that is, um, you know, the military and intelligence communities gained increasing surveillance and control powers during the pandemic. So so they have an interest there. Uh, Executives, whether a president or a governor, gains additional powers under a state of emergency. So we're still operating under a federal state of emergency in the United States. Uh, The president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers, during a declared state of emergency, including additional access to to funding and, and budgets that he could allocate for the for the purpose of dealing with the emergency. So this is one of the reasons that you know President Biden is very reluctant to end the sure. state of emergency because that would mean relinquishing that power. And then you have you have a kind of merging of state and corporate power where you see global corporate interests from big pharma to big tech uh, showing massive gains 
during during the pandemic and using their power to control the flow of information online and to basically profit at the expense of the working class and middle class. So we saw we saw during the pandemic the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history from the working class and the middle class, yeah. not just to the upper class, but to the very tip of the socioeconomic pyramid, to the big tech uh, and, and sort of largest globe spanning corporations in the world. So I think it, it's this confluence of uh, state interests, particularly military intelligence and executive power with global corporate interests that gave rise to this phenomenon that I call the biomedical security state. Wonderfully exhaustive answer. So thank you for that. How much do you think, and and I'm perhaps or undoubtedly asking you to speculate a bit, but how much of you know the apparatus that has been put together in the, in this bio you know security kind of apparatus system? Do you think is due to uh, you know, let's be charitable. It's, you know, this, we we really think that, you know, we are, in, in French, you say les bien pensants, the, the well thinkers, right? We, you yeah. know, or or as Thomas Sowell would say, the, you know, the anointed ones. We, we, we really have your best interests in mind. We really are trying to protect you. And so that ultimately, even though the implication or the implementation of what they're doing is draconian, the, the, it starts with a, you know, noble uh, desire to help versus no no this is completely strictly diabolical james yeah. you know james bond villain draconian stuff are you able to put if i ask you to assign a hundred points to how much is due to the sort of the noble yeah. angle versus james bond villain what would you assign well in terms of the proportion of the people involved i have no doubt that the vast majority of the sort of mid-level bureaucrats uh, the the, uh, the public health agency employees or the pharmaceutical company employees are just trying to do their job. They sincerely believe that they're doing a good thing and that they're protecting the population from a deadly illness. And so I have no doubt that most of the people involved in sort of implementing this apparatus had the best of intentions and were just kind of doing what they thought was best or doing what they were told was best, that the population was propagandized uh, pretty relentlessly with literally military-grade propaganda, uh, told, you know, they were told to, to follow the experts and follow the science. And they sincerely thought that they were doing that in supporting uh, any one of these interventions that I've mentioned. And in fact, they were they were not following good science. They were following the television. <laughs> they were following the talking head that was anointed uh, on TV. But if if you if you go to the the people who should have known better, right? If you go to the agency heads at the federal level, if you go to uh, many people in governance that recognize that you know this was an opportunity to basically enhance their own power or serve their own interests, then there is a group of elite actors that I think can't be let off the hook quite so easily. There is a group of elite actors that uh, should have known better, but that used the public health emergency as a kind of fulcrum to enhance their power or enhance their profits. And so, for example, Amazon lobbied on the West Coast of the United States, Amazon lobbied for lockdowns and school closures 
early on when, you know, there was almost no public debate on the question of lockdowns. But, you know, insofar as there was one, uh, there were there were some global corporations that were pushing in the direction of lockdown. Now, why is that? Is that because Amazon has any expertise in how to manage a p- pandemic or how to deal with a with a novel coronavirus? No, of course not. Uh, they push for lockdowns because look at what happened during lockdowns to their profits when everyone was forced to be at home when their uh, you know when their needs had to be met through e-commerce. A lot of a lot more people were just ordering goods and services online and Amazon is obviously the big, biggest provider of of that. And furthermore, th- their competition in the form of small local businesses was destroyed when small businesses had to close and only 40% of those in the United States that closed during the pandemic have reopened. So many of them are still sort of closed permanently. And you saw the personal wealth of Jeff Bezos skyrocket. You saw the stock prices and the um, and the gains, the market capitalization of companies like Amazon and Google and Meta skyrocket during the pandemic. So these, you know, these these companies, whether e-commerce companies or big tech companies that control the flow of information online, were able to uh, able to control the opposition to lockdowns by censoring them, right? And again, when everyone is forced to communicate. Uh, from behind a screen, then there are certain global corporate interests that gain a lot of power, that gain a lot of wealth under those circumstances. So I'm prepared to let a lot of well-meaning people, uh, you know, whether employees or public health bureaucrats or, um, you know, school teachers or CEOs of of companies, small companies, you know, give them the benefit benefit of the doubt, that they really thought they were doing the right thing. I think most people made personal sacrifices during the pandemic to do things that were very inconvenient for them, you know, for the sake of what they believed was going to be in the common interest or the public good. Uh, But I'm not willing to let everyone off the hook. There are certainly people who should have known better. There are certainly people who were simply uh, opportunists that used the public health crisis as an occasion to accrue massive power or massive wealth in ways that were fundamentally irresponsible. And there's certainly people that were involved in the pandemic planning that recognized that we were using wholly untested measures, that lockdowns had never been tried before. We had no empirical evidence that they would work. In fact, we know now that they didn't work. They didn't achieve their public health purpose in stopping or slowing the spread of the virus. And instead they just did enormous collateral harms. And, you know, those folks should not be let off the hook quite so easily. They need to take responsibility for decisions that ended up being extraordinarily destructive. Do, do you do you also, uh, are you, I suspect that your answer is going to be yes, but are you, does it surprise you that how much, you know, because it, there, it, the old cliche of it takes two to tango. I mean, okay, we've got, we could have some nefarious architects that, you know, either in a premeditative, premeditated way, you know, try to, you know, benefit from this uh, pandemic. But the other party that for the two to tango is that you need for people to acquiesce and yes. succumb to herd mentality. Yeah. And of course, you know, I've certainly written a lot and in the parasitic mind, I, 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 I'm I, well aware of the, of the fact that most people, you know, are herd-like in their behavior. Yeah. But yet you somehow think of, the United States as this bastion of individual liberty that, you know, 
Americans are somehow made of a different stock whereby, you know, the, the entire American experience has been based on the fact that, you know, we absolutely define our foundational values by you never being able to do this to us. And yet yeah. most people shrug their heads and said, okay, govern me harder, daddy. Yeah. And so does that surprise you? And do you think that Americans, if not the West in general, has lost that unique ethos that was defining its experience? Yeah, that's a great question, Gad. Uh, the answer to that is yes. I was surprised at how willingly people acquiesced to things that simply didn't make any sense. Now, they were told to listen to the experts. And, you know, the, so I think a lot of people just felt I'm ill-equipped to make judgments on these matters. But on the other hand, um, what we saw was the outsourcing, not just of uh, scientific expertise, but sometimes the outsourcing of one's logic and one's common sense. And so, you know, I'm trying to re-empower people to, you know, listen to your gut and listen to your common sense and listen to your logic. You may not be a biologist or a virologist or a public health expert, but you know a logical contradiction when you spot one. You know if the talking head on TV, the so-called expert, is saying the exact opposite this week of what he said last week with no explanation of why he changed his mind, right? And so I was dismayed to see how willingly people acquiesced to uh, relinquishing their freedoms that, that we had taken for granted, to relinquishing fundamental rights, to assuming that none of the usual rules apply because we're in this, we're in this crisis situation. That was very dismaying. And so, you know, perhaps Americans were naive to be to believe that we were made of stronger stuff or that we were somehow exempt from human nature and, and the social forces of human history. Um, you know, I think at one time that cultural ethos was probably stronger in the United States. But the effect of mass media, the effect of mass culture, uh, the, the effects of social media that we're still trying to wrap our heads around. And, you know, we now know that the flow of information on social media was tightly controlled, not just by private social media company, companies, but at the behest of the U.S. government in, in, you know, in the case of what happened in the United States. I'm part of a lawsuit called Missouri v. Biden, where we're, we're challenging basically, I think there's 17 now federal agencies named among the defendants that were involved in basically a massive regime of censorship. Uh, and this censorship was, was a 24 seven sort of operation and getting down to the level of, of details that, you know, I think were shocking to most people when they were revealed why, you know, government agency officials reaching out to senior vice president of Twitter, or Facebook, why hasn't this, individual account been removed or did you see what this guy gad sad posted the other day you know uh why is his account still up or why hasn't that post been removed that level of kind of reaching into the, the communications of people on social media and in fact we now know that not only were public posts censored on social media but we got uh, on on discovery in that case we got some documents and communications between Meta uh, and the federal government. And Meta, of course, owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, this private text messaging app, or supposedly private. And we found out that they were censoring uh, COVID-related content, not only on Facebook and Instagram, which was not surprising, but they were also censoring communications on WhatsApp. 
Yeah, and you might think like, how did that happen? It's, you know, I opened the app and it says end to end encrypted. Well, they couldn't necessarily reach in and see what you were typing on the app, but they could see links that you were sharing. And so if you were sharing a link to, you know, your podcast or another disfavored, you know, a, an article with disfavored ideas, then the algorithm would limit the number of times that could be forwarded or the link wouldn't show up on the other end if you tried to send it to your family. So, you know, people using an app like that assume that this is just private communication between me and my friends or me and my family. Uh, but we now know that the government censorship regime, at least in the United States, was reaching down to that level to prevent you from sharing information with your close personal contacts, which is just astonishing. So, um, so I guess I'm giving, I'm giving, a long-winded answer that's that's kind of I'm trying to be sympathetic to the Americans and the Canadians and the you know the 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 English who the Australians and the Australians who you know just kind of threw individual rights and natural rights out the window um because you know when you recognize the again I'm calling it military grade propaganda an incredibly detailed level of censorship that was that was inflicted on entire populations you you sort of it starts to make more sense out of i think people's behavior during the pandemic um you know they they weren't allowed to see two sides of of various debates they were given the false impression that there was a scientific consensus on certain issues whereas in fact there was no such consensus it's just that one side of that debate was entirely silenced and sidelined what do you think and I'll, in a second i want to pivot to i mean to a related topic how you were fired at uc irvine but before i do that just to stay on the sort of same uh, same theme so okay great you're filing a lawsuit hopefully you'll win it it's a small sort of piecemeal victory hopefully these yep. build up and you know we reverse course and so on but it seems to me and certainly something that i discussed in the parasitic mind that many of these idea pathogens have taken 50 60 70 years depending on the idea pathogen right to to first be spawned on university campuses and then to proliferate in the rest of society leading to our politicians being infected with these dreadful ideas so i, I worry that if we take the long-term view of you know we're going to dismantle all of these you know dreadful realities and win back freedom if it yes we can view it as a long-term you know, cultural war thing that'll take another 50 years. Yep. But it seems to me that the the fastest way and probably the, the most likely to succeed way would be for a cataclysmic agent of change to come along. And hence, that's why Donald Trump was hated because whether you liked him or not, he was someone that was coming from right. outside the system saying, look, right. I'm a bull. I'm going to change things, you know, from day one. Do you th are you optimistic that we could win the battle with the long term view, or do you feel that there needs to be a larger than life on a white horse night coming and sort of dismantling everything in order for us to rediscover those foundational values that we seem to be losing at an alarming rate? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and I'm trying to fight on both fronts. On the one hand, I'm telling people that we need to think in fifty year increments. We need to plant seeds in the culture that are not necessarily going to germinate in our lifetimes. We need to be thinking about our children and our grandchildren, what kind of world they're going to inherit. So I think that that view of 
of the future and of history and of our role in cultural change is really important to maintain in a culture that usually only thinks in terms of the next election cycle. On the other hand, uh, I worry that if we don't make some significant uh, changes and if we don't mount some significant resistance in the next four to five years, that some things will be put in place to make the biomedical security regime very hard to resist. So I talk in the book about the next steps and what's going to be rolled out. The book is not primarily a retrospective on what went wrong with the pandemic. It's it's understanding where we're at, where we are now, and where this um, where this new model of governance is going to push us in the future. So it's it's attempting to educate people so that they can take action in the next few years. And there's two things I talk about in there: digital IDs tied to biometric data and the use of central bank digital currencies. And once these two things are in place, I think you will be in a sort of digital system that's very hard to get out of and very hard to resist because the government will be able to, the government or private actors will be able to exercise control over your financial transactions, over your travel, over you know, basic, basically your interactions with other people and your communications in ways that totalitarian regimes of the past could only have yeah. dreamed about, right? So my, my favorite part of the book is the epilogue. The epilogue is a, a little sort of science fiction story called Seattle 2030. And I placed it in the not too distant future, easy to imagine life, you know, seven years from now. And what I did was I, I didn't invent any new technology. So in that sense, it's not science fiction. I said, if these technologies that are already in place and that and that will be rolled out soon are widely embraced on a mass scale, what is society and what is life in society going to look like? You know, and I the story starts out kind of benign because these things are going to be sold on the basis of convenience and frictionless travel and ease of, you know, financial transactions and, you know, comfort and convenience are are good, good marketing points. And then as the story proceeds without, you know, giving away the spoiler, you start to see, okay, there's some flies in the ointment. And then hopefully by the end, (laughs) by the end of the story, you recognize, okay, maybe this is a society that I don't want to live in. Um, And so I am worried also to answer your question about the near term future. And I think there's a great need to educate people on sort of what happened to us over the last three years, but also where things are going next with the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control. Because if we don't mount a firm resistance and if we don't develop uh, some parallel institutions, some decentralized means of market transactions and communications and information sharing, I think we're going to find ourselves in a situation in which it's going to become increasingly difficult to mount any firm resistance to uh, government controls over our behavior. I mean, in a few years, something like the trucker's convoy is going to be impossible because there's going to be an internet-based kill switch on every car and every truck, you know, in the world. And so somebody could just push up, you know, if everyone's going to Ottawa in this, you know, kilometers long convoy, somebody could just push a button and those trucks will not start. They will not move, right? Do you want to live in a world where the government can control your ability to get in a car and go somewhere? I I certainly don't. So I think, so, and that's going to lead us a very nice segue into your UC Irvine uh, debacle. 
I think, you know, one of the things that I talk about in, in many of my engagements, and certainly in the parasitic mind, in the last chapter where I'm giving, you know, a call to action, activate your inner honey badger, don't diffuse responsibility onto others, yeah. be the penalty taker, using the the metaphor of the the, the guy who, who takes the penalty shot yeah. is often not the best player, but he's the one who says, I'm willing to assume that responsibility, right? Yeah. You look at the World Cup, it's not always the best players, it's the guys that have the 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 big testicular fortitude to be able yep. to do it. And yep. I think one of the, the difficult things is to get people to say, you know what, in whatever small or large fear of influence that I can operate in, I'm going to speak out, I'm going to contribute, which then leads me precisely to your UC Irvine story. Before I, I give the, the 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 introduction to that story, and then of course, I'll see the, the floor to you. One of the things that when, when people ask me, you know, why do you what compels you to do the things that you do, you know, in terms of your public engagement and so on? You know, you you already lead a very you know busy life as a professor, author, blah, blah, blah. And I always answer in the following way. And I think that in in hearing your explanation of what happened to UC Irvine on the Dr. Drew show, show it resonated with me, yeah. although you might have used different uh, wording. So I always say that I have a very exacting code of personal conduct such that at the end of the night, when I put my head on the pillow to sleep, the only way that I can avoid insomnia is to know that I never equivocated in my defense of truth and freedom. If I feel that in any way I modulated my speech, my actions, then based on my very exacting code of personal conduct, I would consider myself to be fraudulent and therefore I couldn't live with myself and therefore I fight. I don't, yep. and hence I activate my inner honey badger. And it's not because I want to be uh, acerbic on social media or I want to be cantankerous. It's because it pisses me off. I'm combative in that way. I'm very, in my personal style, I'm a very warm and jovial and happy go lucky yeah. person. But when you, it's like seeing a person being raped in an alley. Do you intervene or do you walk away pretending that you never heard the cries? Well, I intervene and I think so so do you. So would you. And in the in the in your story of UC Irvine, what's what struck me, and then I'll cede the floor to you to, to fill in the details, is that you're the guy who's the medical ethicist. You're the guy who's <laughs> teaching the the students about you know informed consent and bodily body autonomy. But yet you have to be under a regime where from this side of your mouth, you're teaching that, but from this, and you say, I couldn't do it. And therefore you face the repercussions that you did. So hopefully that's a good introduction. Take it no, away. No, that's, that's it exactly. I mean, so well said and everything, everything you're describing resonates with me a hundred percent. And I, before I tell my story about what happened at UCI, uh, I just want to, I just want to endorse your recommendation to people that, you know, I, I don't have a microphone like these two guys, or I, I don't I don't write books, I don't publish articles, I don't have a public voice or a large audience. That's okay. You have some sphere of influence among your family, among your friends, among your coworkers, among the people in your neighborhood. And I keep telling people as a first step, just notice when you're self-censoring. Notice when you're not saying in a group context what you actually think. That doesn't mean you have no filter and you say every thought that comes into your head all the time, right? But if you're if you find yourself uh, not being willing to disagree with the zeitgeist or with the, you know, the general trend of a conversation because you're worried about what other people will think of you, 
uh, then consider that you're just internalizing uh, authoritarian controls in your own mind. And you're basically cooperating with um, with the problem. You're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So um, being willing to take the risk and, and contradict people or speak out or say, no, I don't actually think that makes any sense. And here's why. I, I think that's something that everyone can do. And it's it's going to require, uh, you know, a, a movement of many citizens operating at many different levels of society uh, to gain back our freedoms. So, with that said, yes, I, background: I spent my entire career up until December 2021 at UC Irvine. I was a full professor in the School of Medicine. Uh, I was the director of the medical ethics program. I think I was the only person in the School of Medicine. The taught courses to medical students across all four years of the curriculum. So I was deeply involved in medical education. I was planning to continue my career in academic medicine and retire there. Um, I was also involved in all of the policymaking for COVID at um, the university-wide level at the Office of the President that oversees not just UC Irvine, but UCLA and UC San Francisco, all the UCs with with a hospital, we made uh, we made very sensitive, difficult policies like the ventilator triage policy, the vaccine allocation policy. But then when it came time for the vaccine mandate, our committee was not consulted. It just came down from on high and there was no questioning and there was no debate. And that troubled me. So to try to get a conversation going at the university and elsewhere, I published a piece that year in the Wall Street Journal uh, arguing that university vaccine mandates violated basic principles of medical ethics, uh, principles like informed consent, going all the way back to the Nuremberg Code, central principle of 20th and 21st century medical ethics in the West. And, uh, you know, that that felt like a lead balloon at the university, uh, failed to get a discussion or conversation going. The Shortly after I published that piece, the university finalized their vaccine mandate. And then I started seeing people getting steamrolled. I started seeing students, um, you know, reaching out to me in crisis saying, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I have conscience-based reasons for declining the vaccine, but I can't get an exemption because I don't want to, I want, I'm trying to be honest and I don't want to pretend to have a religious uh, exemption when I'm not, um, I'm not a religious person or I have legitimate medical reasons uh, to decline the vaccine, but nobody will write me a medical exemption. The, the California Medical Board was going after anyone who wrote medical exemptions. So that was, a, that was a serious problem in terms of patient care. I saw dedicated nurses and other staff at the hospital getting steamrolled and literally you know, facing the prospect of losing their jobs over this issue. So I basically projected ahead and, and like you, um, you know, just, to, just to use the sleep <laughs> example, I just knew I wouldn't wake up in the morning with a clear conscience if I hadn't, you know, tried to do something to change this policy. So long story short, I filed a case in federal court um, challenging the university's vaccine mandate uh, before the judge even, before the case went to trial or the judge well, made a ruling. you were still employed when you filed it. I was, I was. And, you know, by the way, if you want to go sideways with your employer, then suing them in federal court is pretty Probably not a good, not a good way to, to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I could see the writing on the wall. I knew that once I did that, you know, that was going to be the beginning of the end. And sure enough, um, as soon as they legally could, um, they placed me on um, unpaid suspension uh, and then they fired me. So, um, so yeah, I, I sacrificed my job and my career for that principle. Uh, and it was really because, you know, that was 
filed the lawsuit in August, fired in December. I was projecting ahead to January, February, where I taught the required ethics course for the first and second year medical students. What's and I, the, I forgive me I, for interrupting you. What what what's the official reason for your firing? There has to be so, a mechanism by which we yeah. fire you. What is it? So the official reason for my firing is alleged non-compliance with that vaccine mandate policy. So I declined vaccination on the basis of the fact that I had already had COVID and recovered from COVID and had infection induced or, or natural immunity. And we now know just, you know, Lancet paper published yep. a couple of weeks ago that natural immunity is superior to vaccine immunity for purposes of my legal argument. It just had to be equal to vaccine immunity. Um, and actually, there was by the time I filed the lawsuit, there were 150 studies on COVID natural immunity. This is not news that natural immunity works. It's only it's only news because the CDC finally acknowledged uh, finally acknowledged it and endorsed my central argument in the case that we shouldn't discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Number one, because the vaccines don't stop infection and transmission, and number two, because natural immunity against COVID is is robust. So they they fired me for not taking the vaccine, but I say allegedly because I had submitted two medical exemptions signed by my personal physician that they had declined. Um, they also made accommodations for other faculty members that didn't want the vaccine to have them work full time or part time from home. I was willing to do that. I was willing to go on unpaid sabbatical for two years until the pandemic was over, um, you know, to save my job. But, uh, you know, they were in no mood to. To, to play ball. They were no mood to make the kind of accommodations for me that they had made for other faculty members. So it was a really aggressive kind of retaliatory uh, process that um, that they that they used to fire me. But uh, the the supposed reason was uh, declining the vaccine. They fired me under the very policy that I was challenging in federal court. But were you, so you were a full professor, but were you under sort of a clinical non-tenured track or were you a tenured full professor? Yeah. So I was under a clinical non-tenured track, but actually the the fact that I was not tenured, you know, didn't really matter if I, they would have done the same thing to, oh, so it to wouldn't a tenured have been, professor. Okay. So if you were tenured, it wouldn't have afforded you some magical Correct. greater protection. No. You would have been just as much under the potential purview of being fired. That's right. That's right. In fact, there were there were two other professors uh, fired and, um, you know, they were they were professors who had uh, at least in one case had tenure. And again, that was insufficiently uh, protective. So I think, you know, one of the one of those was let go. The other one was kind of forced into early retirement under this um, under this mandate. Okay, quick uh, personal question before we dig deeper into some medical ethical issues. Uh, if tomorrow UC Irvine contacts you and says, oh, we really screwed up. Uh, here's some some self-flagellation modeled after the great Gatsad. Uh, would you accept it? Or is would your pride at this point and your your, your sense of you know righteous indignation yeah. say, shove up this offer to, re to rejoin you where yeah. the sun doesn't shine? So I would certainly accept an apology. I would certainly accept back pay. I would certainly like my pension back that you know went up in smoke. I might even accept um, an adjunct uh, or volunteer faculty title. I think you know the university could do some things to make right. By the way, this is a complete fantasy. This is never going to happen. We're dealing with people who will never admit 
that they were wrong, you know, no matter what yeah. the CDC or the peer reviewed journals now yeah. say about the issue. Um, so it's a nice, it's a nice happy thought, but it's really fantasy land thought. But I don't think I would go back to the university um, because I, 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 I think the, I think the university system, quite frankly, has become too corrupted and too beholden to um, financial interests that have nothing to do with education or good research. And ironically, you know, the the, the place where free speech and free inquiry has become most difficult now is probably institutions of higher education. Don't I know it? Uh, so I, I think I probably don't have to explain that one to you. So I've found that working for the independent think tanks, um, Brownstone Institute, Ethics of Public Policy Center, Zephyr Institute, these were some independent research institutes that uh, continued to support me or, you know, reached out and started supporting me uh, when I lost my job. These are places that, uh, you know, have been a terrific home for my work in bioethics and public policy and um, you know, I'm I'm sort of enjoying the the liberties that yeah. are afforded by no longer being in the university context. The university is the place where critical thinking and creativity and free thought go to die. Yeah. Um, sad to say, I wish that wasn't the case because they're enormously important institutions for society. But um, you know, I talked about the you know, now is the time I think for founding new parallel institutions and. Uh, you know, new ways of educating people, maybe outside of the mainstream university setting, new um, new universities uh, or um, institutions of higher education that are operating outside of the, the constraints of federal funding. I think these things are really important right now. You know, I'd be happy to go work for a creative and forward thinking place like that that really cared about you know, free inquiry and free speech and academic freedom and didn't just give lip service to it. Um, but the the legacy institutions of higher education are are not that place. And I worry that the corruption is so deep yeah. that they really can't be reformed at this point or that reform is a 50 year project, perhaps. Yeah. So two two quick points and then I'll 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 get back to the medical ethics. Number one, you, you mentioned earlier, well, I don't think it's going to happen. It's a happy thought, but it's not going to happen because they would never admit to being wrong, which is a perfect segue to uh, a, a, a sad truth clip that I did a few days ago where I was uh, uh, briefly discussing a, a wonderful paper on you know, how to measure psychometrically intellectual humility, right? Mm. Which, which is, of course, linked to epistemic humility. And actually- yeah. My uh, on this Friday, I have a guest coming on my show. His name is uh, Hugo Mercier. He's out of France. He's a cognitive psychologist, and one of the things that he he studies is uh, well, intellectual humility. But again, not just at sort of a, a philosophical level, right? I mean, empirically, how do we how do we measure that person A scores higher on intellectual humility than person B? And so he he also so in chapter seven of the Parasitic Mind. I cite his book, co-authored with another uh, uh, psychologist based out of, out of France, Dan Sperber. The book is called The Enigma of Reason, where they argued that the, the, the human capacity for reason did not evolve to seek truth, but it evolved to win arguments, right? Uh, now, I, I, I cite that uh, wonderful book at the in the introduction of chapter seven, because chapter seven of my book is titled How to Seek Truth. 
And they're coming along yeah. and saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. People don't give a damn about the truth. People give a damn about winning arguments. That's the evolved mechanism. I want to beat you. I want to defeat you. Yeah. And therefore, I'll go la, la, la all day long. And I'm not going to fall prey to, you know, your evidence and so on. So I think that's the first point I want to make. The second point regarding, uh, you know, the, the the death of the traditional university or what you call, you know, legacy education, of course, is something that resonates very much with me. I am a tenured full professor. I'm a chaired professor. I never thought that I would be anything other than a professor. It's, it's, it's within my DNA to be a professor. And yet I'm growing tired, regrettably, with unbelievable chagrin and regret, I say, not only because of all the parasitic woke stuff, which itself is a, is a fatal disease, but even if none of that were there, there is a bureaucratic inertia in the universities yes. Yes. that is so brutal. It's You, you earlier yeah. said, I, I don't remember the words you said, it's wherever it goes to die. I've always said, uh, universities is where innovation goes to die, right? Yeah. Because we yeah. have to we have to hold, you know, a departmental committee to strike a commission to decide on a task force as to whether we should <laughs> offer coffee in the departmental lounge. Well, we just wasted seventy hours and three million dollars of man hour to decide <laughs> on whether we're going to have twenty five cents cup of coffees. I'm too, life is short, man. I want to move, yeah. I want to do big things now, yesterday. And yeah. so I agree with you that uh, even if all the parasitic stuff were, we, we have a deworming mechanism now to clean, cleanse our <laughs> minds of all this bullshit, it would still be a problem. Yeah, that's right. So, so, is, so then I, I hope you give me an optimistic answer, but I worry that you may not. Can we retrieve back the universities or... Yeah. Is it a fatal disease, doctor? That is a that's a really important and a really really hard question. I want to I want to comment on some of the epistemological issues. I think which are uh, central to your question that you sort of remarked on before. I, I do I have a section of the book where I contrast the the classical view of rationality that all of us participate in you know, the ability to reason and seek the truth. So in, in platonic terms, all of us participate in, in the logos, right? It's some universal form of rationality that makes inquiry possible, that makes communication possible. Um, but, you know, contemporary sort of 19th, 20th century rationalist philosophies don't see the human capacity for reasoning in those terms. They see it in the terms that you described it purely instrumental, Right. So the, the categories of true and false are not the categories that we're operating with. And we're not actually pursuing any form of you know universal truth. Uh, so true false is passe. And you know, it's better to talk about useful or useless. Right. Yes. History is moving in a particular direction that some elite clerisy is able to discern the direction of history. And you either get on board with that or you don't. And rationality is. And, and rational arguments are are useful insofar as they, you know, they push us in the direction that, um, you know, progress is supposed to take us. Um, and, you know, that's as far as we can go. And, you know, this, this old fashioned talk about, you know, truth and falsehood, you know, needs to 
you know, we can still speak in those terms, but all of us understand underneath that what we really mean is that this is instrumentally useful for our purposes or for achieving the aims that, you know, we discern our best or, or it's not right. And, and so that's, if a university is actually grounded in that uh, instrumentalist view of reason, then um, you can, you can do all kinds of structural and functional reforms. You can try to get a handle on, you know, the, the metastasizing bureaucracy, but you're still not going to have an institution that cares about the truth, right? right? You're still not going to have an institution that instills in people, the intellectual humility necessary for free inquiry, the, the ability to, to be open to new ideas and to recognize when perhaps I was wrong in the past. And if a university doesn't have that, then, um, then it's just a tool in the hands of the powerful, right? And everyone who works there is basically a flack that's, that's, you know, saying whatever needs to be said, they're a sophist saying whatever needs to be said, um, you know, from the people that are paying them, whether it's the state that's funding their salary or, uh, you know, the corporate interests that are funding their research or, or whatever. Um, And, you know, the, so this isn't this is an old problem that goes all the way back to Socrates' arguments with with the sophists in the ancient world. You know, they thought reason was just you know instrumental. It's it's basically arguments are pre, and, and rhetoric and persuasion. This is all you know to be placed in the service of raw power. And you know, Socrates was a thorn in their side, and he was so annoying that they actually put him to death because he said, "No, I think." I think the purpose of of reasoning is is to is to engage in a dialectical process where we're honestly searching for the truth, right? And we have to believe that the human mind is capable, the light of reason is capable of grasping the truth. Um, and so I, I don't know what to do about that because I, I don't see in the short term uh, strong prospects for um, refounding the university on the basis of truth because because i i think most most people have bought into a kind of relativist um uh, epistemology or the ethics of the direction of history a kind of uh you know a kind of instrumentalist view that um that has nothing to do with the search for truth so that's a long-winded and somewhat pessimistic answer, <laughs> but <laughs> well, uh, of course, what you're calling uh, rel- relativistic or instrumentalist, uh, uh, all of these things are afforded, you know, a trajectory to flourish through what I call the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, which is postmodernism. Right? It's postmodernism yeah, that allows you to, to do that. Uh, but I, I liked your your use of the word uh, useless versus useful because it now leads me to the exact segue I wanted to get to in terms of medical ethics in contrasting something that I've been talking a lot about, deontological ethics versus consequentialist yeah. ethics, right? So the word it's useful falls under the consequentialist That's umbrella, right. right? Whereas deontological is there's an absolute truth. Presumption of innocence is a deontological yeah. Uh, principle that we could never violate, right? Freedom of there is no freedom of speech, but don't once you say but you fall yeah, under consequentialist. Right. So let me ask you regarding that dichotomy, the ontological versus consequentialist, when it comes to 
medical ethics, what are, if any, the deontological principles under the umbrella of medical ethics that absolutely fall under that? So for example, is body autonomy a deontological principle? Whereas the other folks say, no, no, it's not because this is a pandemic. So you lose your bodily autonomy because of consequentialist calculus. Tell us about that. No, that's an excellent question. And I I think, let me, let me set a few examples uh, to try to challenge the utilitarian or consequentialist view of medical ethics. Should we, um, let's suppose there are five unhealthy children that all need a different organ to survive. They need an organ transplant. And we have one healthy child that's a perfect match for all five of those children. Well, if we if we kill that healthy child in order to harvest those organs, we can save the life of five children. Yes. And killing one to save five on a utilitarian calculus makes sense. I think most sane people would still recoil at that and say, no, you can't you can't do that. I love even that example, even, by the way. What a beautiful example. Thank you. Right? We, we don't do that. And I, I think um, most people still deep down have this core conviction that there are certain things that you can never do, right? You can never justify rape on the basis of, you know, if I do this, then maybe, you know, I could, somebody puts a gun to my head and says, rape this person, or I'm going to blow up this building. I, I, it's still never justifiable to do certain things, right? Even on this kind of utilitarian calculus. There's a great scene in The Dark Knight uh, where Joker sets up this social experiment of there's two people on two boats. And, you know, if one of them pulls the trigger, the other boat blows up. But if neither pull the trigger, both boats are going to blow up by midnight. So they have to decide, do I kill these other people in order to save my own life? It's this great kind of ontological versus utilitarian scenario that's that's set up um but i also i also would answer that question by going back to nuremberg i've talked about the nuremberg code what was the nuremberg code nuremberg code was developed after the nuremberg trials which you know people who are aware of history of world war ii would know that that's when the international community led by the nato powers got together and said um what the nazi war criminals did during the war you know, has to be dealt with. These people have to be brought to justice. And so high-ranking Nazi officials were tried and condemned for crimes against humanity. Um, Twelve physicians were also tried. Seven of them were convicted for crimes against humanity. And uh, a handful of those actually received the death penalty. They hanged for those crimes. If you look at the Nuremberg doctors' trials, it's very interesting because these these were doctors who had conducted gruesome experiments on death camp prisoners. And as uncomfortable as it is to do this, it's important to look at their defense because they had some interesting arguments in their own defense. Number one, they said everything that we did was legal under the laws of Germany when we did it. So under what law are you prosecuting us? That's a very hard legal question to answer. Um, and you know, metaphysical question to answer, if you will. Um, And basically, the answer of the Nuremberg Court was, look, it may have been legal under this perverted regime, but there are certain things that 
you can't not know, right? <laughs> there are certain things that as a human being, as a member of the human family, not, not as a German citizen, but just simply as a human being capable of rational thought, you should recognize are just plain always and everywhere wrong, right? right? And putting a death camp prisoner in a bucket of ice water to see how long it takes for them to die of hypothermia, even if it yields interesting medical information, is something that you can simply never do to another human person, right? So they were convicted on this kind of natural rights, natural law-based argument that there are certain universal ethical principles that can that are always and everywhere valid and that can never be violated, even if they, you know, yield useful scientific information, or even if, you know, the other argument that they used was basically these people were going to die anyway. And the conditions in the medical wards were better than the conditions in the general barracks. In fact, a lot of the prisoners wanted to get on the medical wards and participate in these experiments because they got better food. They got better shelter. You know, at least until they died, they were treated, you know, a little more humanely, which as uncomfortable as it is to consider was actually also true. And yet none of those utilitarian justifications was sufficient. And the world responded with a resounding no. So... Long lead up, here's the answer to your question. The first principle of the Nuremberg Code, which was drafted in response to this to try to prevent these atrocities in the future, was the principle of informed consent, the principle on which I sacrificed my career in academic medicine, that an adult of sound mind can never be forced to either participate in an experiment or uh, be given a, a medical intervention that they don't want. Right. So we have the and right. Sorry, after let me just interrupt you. And the fact, but uh, if I'm a consequentialist, uh, you know, Davos guy, do I say, yeah, sure, sure, deontological, schmeontological. But when you're making that decision, if it impacts the safety of others as per a transmissible yeah. disease, then you lose that deontological right. What's your answer to that? Yeah. So that's that's the counter argument. And uh, my answer to that is that in certain circumstances, yeah, we do have to take the common good in mind, but there are limits, there are limits to that. Um, so a person who's sick with a contagious disease, um, could they be forcibly quarantined for a period of time? Yes. Should they be forcibly injected with a treatment uh, that they don't want? No, no, there are limits to um, there are limits to the uh, the public good or the common good argument. And that was actually employed in all kinds of disingenuous ways during the pandemic. So the most obvious example is the vaccine mandates, right? Even if you're not going to benefit from the vaccine, even if you don't want it, even if you're at low risk of bad outcomes from COVID because you're young and healthy, you still have to take this, you know, for the sake of protecting others. Well, that argument might have had a little bit more force if we actually had a sterilizing vaccine, a vaccine that stopped infection and transmission. But we knew from the very beginning, if you were paying attention to the clinical trials data, that we didn't have any such vaccine for COVID, uh, that the vaccines did not stop infection and transmission. So that whole do it for the sake of others argument uh, that that was hold. behind the vaccine mandates was was based on false premises from the very beginning. And that's why that traditional principle of informed consent was necessary because the person who's, who stood to benefit or stood, stood to be harmed by that medical in, uh, intervention was the individual receiving the vaccine, not the people, not the people around him. Um, 
you know, that argument was also used to justify mask mandates. And we now know, I mean, the latest Cochrane review, which is gold standard level of evidence in medicine, shows what anyone paying attention to that scientific literature already knew that masks are ineffective for a, a contagious respiratory virus like COVID. So the, the pro one of the problems with that argument is, um, yeah, there are certain principles that still can never be violated, even for the sake of a supposed greater good. But also that argument was deployed in ways uh, that obviously were um, not conducive to the greater good. And basically, you know, we saw that just about anything could be justified on these utilitarian or consequentialist arguments. And uh, if you relinquish natural rights, if you relinquish natural law, if you relinquish you know, the rights guaranteed under the Canadian Charter of Rights or the Bill of Rights in the United States, um, then those rights are really meaningless. Well, um, and I can I can give you a, a, a beautiful example of that that's coming down the, the pipeline. Uh, we're about to go extinct in the next 12 minutes, as Occasional Cortex AOC has explained to us. And therefore, we need to stop you from eating meat, from yeah. procreating, from That's taking right. your car. Yeah. It's not because we're draconian, uh, you know, evil doers. It's because we are doing it for very clear. I mean, what could be more yeah. consequentialist, virtuous than saving yeah. the planet? So, of course, under normal circumstances, we would never intrude into your lives. But we're talking about a mass extinction event here. And therefore we need to throw away all that deontological BS, correct? I'm so glad you brought up that example because this governance by crisis kind of circles back on, um, you know, the theme of the, the biomedical security state exactly. that, you know, what we found is that if you can reframe an issue as an emergency or, or a crisis, uh, then people will accept the idea that we can throw out the rule book and do things that otherwise would not be permitted. And that's why we see these precisely these efforts. So the, the climate issue, um, even before the pandemic, if you look at and bracket for a moment, your views on climate change. Right. If you look at that, that framing of climate change over the last five, six years, if you just read the headlines on climate change, climate change has been reframed as an environmental or ecological issue about sort of the world out there to a public health issue. It's always presented now in terms of harms to population health. And very early on in the pandemic, uh, during the initial lockdowns uh, in 2020, there were serious politicians and serious academics who were proposing that we use rolling lockdowns or periodic lockdowns to yeah. deal with the climate crisis, right? So you reframe climate change from an environmental to a public health issue. And that allows you at some point to declare it a public health crisis. And then all this machinery yeah. that we saw at work during the COVID event can be redeployed for that purpose. We saw racism declared a public health crisis by, you know, 1200. And this is, this so is called why public you health have, officials. You could have a thousand, a hundred thousand people congregate and it wouldn't cause any transmission exactly because the virus has the machinery to be able to recognize whether you're progressive or not. just so therefore it's exactly beautiful that that's a medical fact right well it, it according, according to the experts it's it's a well-known 
unassailable medical fact. And, you know, and look at look at what else this does to an issue like racism, which I don't I don't want to trivialize that issue. Well, if racism is reframed from a, a moral or a social or, you know, religious or sort of a public issue to a public health issue, then suddenly the solution to r- racism has to be brought to you by the experts. Yes. By by the people who know the studies. Right. And that actually what happens in that case is that citizens are actually robbed of personal responsibility for dealing with an issue like racism, because now it's in the hands of of the so-called experts or the public health bureaucrats. And I have to be told and dictated to what to do to try to address this societal issue. So it takes it from the realm of you know, Martin Luther King Jr., who was, who was framing this as an issue where all of us need to take personal responsibility. And it's, you know, it's a moral issue. Again, it's a it's a religious issue. The civil rights movement was a moral and religious movement that influenced politics. And now it's an it's an issue that only the experts can handle. It's it's a power grab. It's a brilliant. I have to hand it to them. Brilliant power grab maneuver to take control over our lives and to take control over all kinds of contested social issues by, you know, declaring them to be public health issues. And then at some point when it's convenient, a public health crisis for which we can throw out the rule book and suspend rights and, you know, violate free speech through censorship, because after all, this is existential. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the survival of the species or we're talking about the survival of the planet or, or what have you. Um, It's a pretty brilliant, kind of totalitarian gambit. I got you. Okay, I'm looking at the clock because I know that you have to leave in no longer than 13 minutes. And I was hoping to get to this earlier, but we're having such a good conversation. I was. I want to talk about psychiatry for a few minutes. I have a psychiatrist with me, so I, I need to, to mine your brain uh, on a few nuggets. So let me start off this uh, last se- uh, segment with the following uh, story. So uh, when I was at UC Irvine, one of the uh, courses that I taught at the MBA level was a course that typically had a lot of uh, medical people you know, kind of health management people who were taking, yep. who were doing an MBA. So they were, you know, OBGYNs and and psychiatrists and all kinds of physicians uh, who were doing an MBA. So one in one of the lectures, I was um, talking about the use. This was a consumer psychology course, consumer behavior course. Uh, I was talking about the use of projective techniques in marketing. Uh, and these projective techniques, of course, come originally from psychoanalysis. Yep. Uh, you know, the word association task, uh, I tell you a word, tell me without filtering the first thing that comes, first to, thing mind, that comes to mind. Right? Yeah. And and so, of course, started in psychoanalysis, then moved. So marketers wanted to, to use that. Yeah. If I tell you Mercedes, what's the first word that comes to mind? Sexy, power, whatever. Yeah. And so in, in that lecture, I then uh, criticized quite forcefully some of the content of Freud and and Jung. Mm-hmm. One of the only uh, disagreements that Jordan Peterson, who's who's a good personal friend of mine and and, and I, we have, is that he's very much enamored with Jung, uh, with Jung, and I think that most of the Jung stuff is a bunch of bullshit. Uh, so yeah. that's the place where we disagree. So at the end of the the lecture, this diminutive uh, woman comes up to me and says, uh, "Oh, Professor, I wanted to really thank you for today's lecture." I said, "Oh." Thank you. I appreciate that. What, 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 what did you like, or why are you saying this? She goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist by training and, uh, 
I was so happy to to hear someone who was cr criticizing Freud and Jung and all that stuff because in my training, you know, we wouldn't have ever dared do that. Yeah. So, okay. So having said that, how much of these principles from Freud and Jung, in terms of the actual practice of psychiatry, does that? remains and how much yeah. is kind of antiquated relics that we no longer take yeah. seriously. So I would say most of the specific principles of psychoanalysis in terms of the topography of the mind and how it works and the dynamic principles that influence our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Most of that has been abandoned by mainstream psychiatry. And I have plenty of criticisms myself of Freud and psychoanalytic theory. But um, but on the other hand, what's been put in place is excessively reductionistic. It's sort of, you know, neurobiology yes. and nothing else. And so psychiatrists become kind of engineers of the synapse. And we, yeah. you know, we use we use medications or we use medical procedures um, to the exclusion of all other therapeutic modalities. And I don't think that's a good model for psychiatry either. So I'm a bit of an old fashioned shrink in the sense that with virtually all of my patients, I engage in psychotherapy and not just yes. managing medications. Some of my patients are on medications. I do use them. I try to use them judiciously, but they can be life-saving in some circumstances. And for certain illnesses or disorders, they're absolutely necessary to help a person function. Um, so I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but the, the sort of exclusive focus on the brain and on the use of biological therapeutics like med medications and psychiatry, I think is, um, I think oversimplifies right. things, right? Depression is nothing but a chemical imbalance in the brain. No, it's more complicated than that. I mean, there's, there's factors certainly on the genetic, on the biological um, and neurobiological levels, but there's psychological and relational and spiritual factors that also play a role in the genesis of, of a complex illness like depression. So what can we take from the, the analysts? Well, there's some broad principles, like the, the idea of a dynamic unconscious, the idea that much of what happens in our mental life happens outside of our awareness. It, well, that's an idea that has let, lots let of validity. Let right? me just interrupt. Whenever I, I want to say something positive about Ford, I say, look, if we threw away even everything that he's ever said, the fact that he, you know, placed a flag on the unconscious mind That's right. is enough of a contribution. And even though if every single other thing that he's ever uttered, which is not the case, was complete yeah. bullshit, he, he he's already has a, he has his place in history. Oh, I, I, I agree completely. Now, he reduced the unconscious drives to, you know, basically sex and aggression, yeah. which was overly simplistic as well. And so we, we have a lot of interesting cognitive science now on the various forms of unconscious bias and how it influences our thinking and you know how it influences our our emotional state uh which has built upon that that basic insight now you could also argue that freud wasn't very original in that regard i mean the idea of the unconscious even though he didn't use that word goes all the way back you could see it in the writings of saint augustine uh, you could certainly see the mechanism of repression that freud described first uh in Nietzsche's philosophy. So, but, but you're right. He, he took, he took that notion of a dynamic unconscious mind and planted it firmly and squarely within 
the uh, the medical role of you know healing neuroses and mental health problems and that that was a very significant yeah. contribution and so i i do think the analysts made important contributions i agree that this sort of cult around carl jung is um probably undeserved and uh, and yet he you know he some of his ideas about archetypes and, sure. and you know universal archetypes yes. uh i i think have important applications um within and outside of psychiatry so you have to you have to separate the wheat from the chafe but i you know my my approach to psychiatry is kind of old fashioned and psychoanalytic in, yeah. in, in terms of recognizing that talk therapy uh, can be very powerful and recognizing that uh, you know there's there's this whole realm of intentionality uh this whole whole realm of the the functions of of the will and the intellect in our mental life that cannot be ignored just in favor of kind of manipulating biology that we have to, we have to figure out a way to have a both and approach because human mental life is so complex. And obviously it is, you know, or it is rooted at some level in the functioning of the brain, but it's also operating at the level of habits and decisions and life experiences and all of those things have to be attended to if you're going to actually help people that are dealing with something complex like trauma and the effects of trauma or, you know, a, a behavioral compulsive problem like an addiction or, you know, a serious mood disorder like depression. So uh, so I'm in favor of the, the both and rather than the either or approach yeah. uh, to psychiatry. But it's been plagued by this sometimes this dichotomous thinking that it's you're either a sort of analyst looking at dynamic issues in mental life or your or your you know sort of reductionistic biological psychiatrist that's only tinkering with the brain and i think those approaches have to be brought together well like most things in life and i that that this your answer preempted my my next question which is you know uh most things in life the the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle between the two that's right. even you know aristotle with his you know uh uh, golden mean virtuous right? mean yeah right the the soldier who's 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 cowardly is bad the soldier who is reckless in his martyrdom is bad and somewhere in the middle is right and i have a whole chapter in my forthcoming book on happiness where i basically argue that the the number one universal law in nature is the inverted you and I, and i demonstrated at the neuronal level at the individual yep. level at the economic level at the ecological level so in other words it keeps coming up this inverted you argument so i'm i'm totally with you that you know the old you know you have schizophrenia because you have a schizophrenic mother is insane uh, yeah. and in that case it is an organic problem and you if you do take a pill it will get rid of the the voices in your head but on the other hand for most things simply popping a pill without any talk therapy seems insane so right. thank you for that fantastic answer but so last question and then we'll just wrap it up uh and i'll try to do it as quickly as possible uh when you mentioned uh jung's uh universal archetypes that is probably <laughs> the place where i agree with jung although i don't agree necessarily i mean I I agree with him because from an evolutionary perspective, we would expect there to be certain universal archetypes, right? Yeah. Even in in male in, in romance novels, if you do a content analysis of the male hero, as evolutionists have done, you find that he's exactly the same There's a type. type in right. every yeah. single role. And, and he's that exact type for clear 
evolved mating preferences. So I'm yeah. with you there, although I would disagree with him about how, you know, it's not the collective unconscious booga booga stuff. Right. There are clear cultural transmission means that ad adhere to evolutionary mechanisms. So having touched very briefly on the evolutionary lens, why do you think so few psychiatrists are informed Mm. via the evolutionary lens. So that one of the great books that I've read on the uh, on that topic, you may or may not know it, Aaron, and if you don't, please rush out and order a copy right after this conversation, is a book called Darwinian Psychiatry by Troisi and Maguire, where they basically go through some of the, the, the most common and typical you know, mental health afflictions via an evolutionary lens. It seems outlandish to me that so few psychiatrists are trained via an evolutionary lens. Why is that? Are you open to it? Are you familiar with it? Anywhere you want to take this, and then I know we have to wrap it up. I'm I'm certainly open to it, and I've I've dabbled a little bit in evolutionary uh, biology and evolutionary psychology, and I think there's very important contributions there. Uh, your work, Jordan Peterson's work, are you know bringing I think the public's attention. Uh, to that that body of work. I, I haven't read the book you mentioned. I will definitely go take a look at it. Uh, in answer to your question, why hasn't been, that been more widely embraced? I, I think it has to do with the, the sort of two competing models in psychiatry have been for the first half of the 20th century, we had psychoanalysis, which we've talked about. And then mid-century, we had a, a kind of reductionist behaviorism, you know, B.F. Skinner, that, that informed some, you know, behavioral therapies. And then in the 1980s, we got the so-called cognitive revolution in psychiatry or biological revolution in psychiatry, where it was all, all about brain imaging, uh, whether structural or functional imaging, and trying to tie neurobiological findings to psychological findings. And that made enormously important contributions. But that that view of biological psychiatry was in a sense static. Let's take the brain as it now is and try to study what's going on with it. Whereas evolution, evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychiatry wants to tell a story also about how we got there, right? right? And um, you know how certain things in certain contexts may have been adaptive, but in other contexts now maybe maybe maladaptive. And that can help explain, you know, is depression, for example, uh, a, a kind of behavioral withdrawal from, from a certain perspective, and yeah. this is oversimplifying, uh, is it a sort of behavioral withdrawal to an environment that has become toxic, which in certain contexts might be, might be protective or adaptive, but in other contexts becomes maladaptive and dysfunctional. I mean, that's a very interesting way to think about something like Depression, it's also helpful perhaps at destigmatizing it yeah. for people that are struggling with it. Um, it. You know, this doesn't mean that you're fundamentally broken. It just means that, you know, your you, your mind and your body have sort of engaged in this mechanism that in this particular context is proving to be maladaptive. So, um, so I, that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree with you. I think that's one among several, you know, important fields of study and perspectives uh, that hasn't been... Uh, is widely influential in psychiatry and should be. I would also look to the social sciences, um, uh, you know, social psychology, for example, has a lot of really important contributions um, to make to our understanding of psychopathology, but that's not something that psychiatrists are typically trained in. Um, 
you know, again, we dabble a little bit in psychodynamic theory and then we, uh, and then we focus a lot in, in the training of psychiatrists on just brain and behavior and so, some of these other fields that I think, you know, from evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology to social psychology and, you know, certain branches of sociology, these things also should, um, uh, you know, should be informing the training and the thinking of psychiatrists. But, um, you know, we're, we're at a place now where the development of psychiatry, I think, has been has been excessively narrow over the last almost 50 years and you know it's it's time to broaden it and to and to see what we can learn from s- some of these other really important disciplines. Well, I love your call for interdisciplinarity. I want to end it. Not not I want to end it. We have to end it because I know you have another meeting coming up. Aaron, what a delight to chat with you. I could talk to you for another three hours. Please come back anytime that you'd Will like. Will do, Gad. Uh, this is a great conversation. So we, thank you so much. Stay on the line so we can say uh, goodbye offline. Uh, thanks again. Cheers.